0: Uh, what I love about the Jesus Storybook Bible is how it gets you thinking about different things. There's so often we get used to hearing scripture in whatever translation perhaps we grew up with. Uh, for me, I, I grew up with, with the NIV, and, and I, I remember things, but if I hear it just a little bit different, or if I use the ESV or something else, you notice different little things. And the really cool thing that... uh, uh Lloyd-Jones does with the Jesus Storybook Bible, is get, to get thinking beyond just Adam and Eve, but thinking about how the creation itself was affected when sin entered the world. And, and she did, like the dove flew away from Adam, and, and the deer darted away, and thinking about other things that have been affected. But before we get into Genesis chapter 3, I want to re- take a moment to remind us where where we are we are week two of our 43 week series of, uh, where we're looking at all the stories of the Jesus storybook Bible. In the first week, uh, we looked at creation. The verse that was our memory work for, uh, this week was, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-1. If you haven't memorized it yet, just take a moment, read it every day, add it into the verse, which I didn't actually check which verses this week. Uh, but we'll post that on Facebook a little bit later for, for y'all to, to consider. Uh, the beautiful thing is we'll have, as a congregation, remembered 43 verses all together, uh, at the end of this. Just one verse every week. We looked at the beginning where God crafted, uh, the world and we thought about how the, God crafted the functions of the world, like how things would go about and the functionaries of the world would be the way to put it. Like, who and what is in the world to complete those functions. And if that was something that sounded interesting to you, I invite you, um, there's a book that expounds upon that. It's written by John Walton, and it's called The Lost World of Genesis 1. If you want some good reading during your time of wherever, by the lake, or at home, or in your study, uh, grab that book and take a moment to read it. He expounds upon... What's going on in the ancient Near East when perhaps this is being written? What would be going on in the minds of the people that are, are hearing it? It's a wonderful, wonderful book. But after God was finished with his creation, he sat down and he rested, and and there's some words that were repeated. What he saw was good, right? Each day what he saw was good, and at the end it was, it was very good. It was a temple where God could interact with all of his people. That's what we said. Because that's where gods live. They got they live in temples. After all the creating was done, it was very good, but then something took a very wrong turn. We heard that in the story today. The world as we see it today doesn't seem to operate in the same way that God had originally set the world up to function. The way He intended things to go was was no longer going to be the case. I think we can see that if we look around the world or think back through history. God created all the molecules and the atoms to make atomic energy. And perhaps that atomic energy was something that God created very good. Perhaps it was something that God said, Man, in the future, they'll figure out how to harness this atomic energy and and they'll be able to create nuclear power which will be able to power cities and whole communities and maybe even whole nations. But when that good thing changed with sin, the intention of that good thing was changed. And instead of harnessing the energy in nuclear fission as something like a reactor, instead... People made it into things like bombs. The intention that God perhaps had set up was changed. It was changed, which would would cause pain and destruction. Think about something more simple like like fire. God set up fire to to function as something right and and perhaps we'd use it to to heat our foods and, and to keep warm and, and and to make the cold go away. Cold, the absence of heat. But you bring fire and you feel the warmth. And then also, it makes the darkness go away because darkness is is only really the absence of light. And so fire could provide for that too. But then after the fall, after sin entered the world, perhaps God's intention with fire and how he created it was, was altered by people, that fire wouldn't just provide light and heat and warmth, but fire would burn down homes and leave people homeless or would be caused to be used as a form of capital punishment as burning people at the stake became a thing. There's these good things that God created, and they're taken into directions that they were never meant to do. And we see it all over the place. Droughts that are from damming up rivers that maybe shouldn't have been dammed up, and it causes food shortages. News stories that recount murders, and the use of things that were maybe meant to be good that were now used for evil. Think of knives. Knives, they're not inherently evil in and of themselves when they sit on your counter. In the hands of an experienced sous chef, he can create amazing, colorful works of art with fresh fruit. In my hands, I can't do that. I can make a BLT. I can cut up some lettuce and some, some tomatoes. But also, the intention of that thing can be changed and lead to recounting of murders or stabbings or people being physically hurt. Oftentimes, or perhaps every time, the frustrations and inconveniences that come from this world that we experience, the pains, the hurts, the diseases, the the stories that we see, the things that we have experienced probably probably aren't things that we expected to encounter in our life. They're, they're not, perhaps, what we would have chosen for our life, would they? But they're present. Paul David Tripp, in his book New Morning Mercies, talks about the world as we know it this way. Life right here, right now, is like living in a disheveled house that has begun to fall down on its own foundations. It is still a house, but it does not function as it was meant to. The doors are constantly getting stuck shut. The plumbing occasionally works properly. You're never sure what's going to happen when you go and plug in an appliance. And it seems like the roof leaks even when it's not raining. So it is with the world that you and I live in. It's a broken down house. Perhaps you hadn't heard the story of the fall before, and and that's okay. Maybe you wondered where and why is the world the way it is? If God created everything very good, how did we end up here? Let's take a moment to read the story again, this time in the New International Version. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the tree in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and it was pleasing to the eye and and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put me here, or you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Interesting stories always have an antagonist. It's someone who's going to oppose the good characters in the story. And typically, it takes the story a little bit of time to develop, to see what's going on. Perhaps you're introduced into the characters before this plot twist happens that that makes something interesting. I I would say that's not the case with the Bible. The antagonist comes up pretty quickly. When you think about it, there's roughly, depending on your translation, 31,000 verses. 31,000 verses in the Bible. A little over 31,000 actually. And if you think about at what point the plot twist happens, you are not even 1% into the Bible before it happens. In fact, you're not even a half of percent into the Bible before the plot twist happens. You are one quarter of 1%. 50 to 60 verses in before the plot twist happens and you're introduced to this antagonist. The serpent. The serpent who who brings about sin. Sin in the hearts of people. And I, I wonder... What what does that sin really mean? In the Old Testament, the word word sin in Hebrew means missing the mark. There's a way of living perhaps that was intended. The way that was expected maybe. The way that we were supposed to go. And that intention was changed. and, And we missed it. We didn't hit the mark. It's like someone who's hammering a nail and they're trying to hit the head of the hammer right on the head of the nail, and instead they hit their thumb, missing the mark. And there's often pain that comes from it. But I want us to think about something. The Jesus Storybook Bible made us think about the lie that was present that, that said God does not love you because He doesn't want you to have this thing or that thing. But we're going to talk about instead the lie that we tell ourselves. Because often what happens in sin is that we don't sin for the hell in it. We sin for the heaven that's in it. We sin because we see something, some small thread of good in whatever we're going to do and we're not thinking about the consequences that could follow later. Follow with me. Track with me as we go. And, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So Satan comes in. Any questions? In the, in the ancient Near Eastern time when we believed this book was written, a serpent, who we call Satan now, a serpent was a, an animal that was seen as a symbol of mystical wisdom. The serpent himself was supposed to have some wisdom that, that was known to that specific animal, but they were also seen as something that was demonic. Something that was hostile and, and contrary. A hostile creature. So the serpent that we come to know as Satan, the angel that fell, uh, comes and gives questions to Adam and Eve. To Eve, really. Beginning to sow the seeds of doubt. We talked about in a sermon probably about two years ago or a year and a half ago, the seeds which caused the, the first sin. The, the, the lie and the seed that said God really doesn't love you. He's holding out on you. And if you would just go down this road, you would be like Him and you would know good and evil and you would have some type of wisdom that you don't have right now. And while the the question might have started the process, I want us to think about and notice how Eve was enticed by the goodness of what she saw. She didn't see the hell in the tree. She saw the heaven in it which said the tree was very good. God had in His creation had made everything good and very good. And so it's no coincidence that when Eve came over to that tree and saw that tree and saw the fruit on that tree, that she said, wow, that looks good for food. Did you know that's pleasing to the eye? It looks so... Wonderful. It looks like we could eat it and it's so pleasing. Why, why wouldn't we eat it? And now we know that it's, it's good enough that it will give us even more knowledge. What is, what is wrong with that? Surely God would, would desire us to eat of this good thing that He has created. They became enticed by the goodness and the temptation. The appearance of that good thing was so tempting that they ate. She took its fruit and ate it. She also gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. When we sin, we don't focus in the hell in it. We focus on the heaven in it. The focus is not the bad consequences that could come, but instead the focus is on whatever goodness is in. And oftentimes when we think about our own areas where we sin, we can even deceive ourselves. We could speak harsh words in a tone that wasn't appropriate, but we would say, well, I didn't intend for it to come this way. I was just trying to explain that completely disregarding how someone heard those words in a perhaps harsh tone, which Scripture later on would say our words have power. I wonder what other areas where we could be attracted to goodness in a sin causing us to deceive ourselves to sin for the heaven in it rather than the hell. For them, it was it was looking at the food and how wonderful it looked and how it looked pleasing to the eye and how it looked like it would be delicious and it would, would give wisdom. And perhaps us. We also look at good in situations considering maybe relationships. I don't think anyone ever goes into a relationship assuming it would ruin their life. I don't think anyone goes into a relationship assuming that something bad would happen. But sometimes when you go into a relationship, say, I'm, I am a married man and I start having a relationship with another individual. I would probably not be thinking I'm going to ruin my family. But instead I would probably be thinking God created marriage and He created relationships and He created intimacy. He created love. Why would we not pursue that? When we think about the words that we say, oftentimes even when we want to bring up someone else's sin, we may not be as carefully crafted in the way that we speak that and that causes hurt and in turn that we sin ourselves. But we were looking for the good in it. I'm just trying to, to get this other individual to to come along and and understand how God is intending them to live. When we sin, we often don't sin for the hell in it, but for the heaven in it. We desire to see the, the good intentions that we had in mind when we encounter sin in our own life. But here's the difference. When we look at other people, that's not the same way that we look at their sin. When we look at our sin, we say, these were the good intentions, and I really didn't mean to do that. But when we look at someone else's sin, it's like, well, how could they do that? Don't they know that that is wrong? And that is completely, uh, how could, I just don't even understand how they can do that. How can they think that? How can they live that way? We flip the script. We like to look at the heaven and how we sin. We like to think about the goodness and, and the pleasure that was provided rather than the, the negative consequences and the bad things and how we have perhaps twisted what God had intended. I wonder what it looks like. What does this greed look like? A desire for for More isn't it? A desire that, that you always need more and and a, a better life, more money, better cars, better so on. And, and so maybe we would go and we would begin to save and penny pinch and so on, which sounds like a wonderful idea. But when we balance it with how God desires us to care for other people's needs, greed can easily turn into sin. And we might say greed, well, I'm not greedy, I'm just prudent in the way I spend my money and I desire to to keep control of it and so on. But perhaps it would cause us to step into sin. There's a fine line perhaps between prudence to be sustainable in our life and greed where we keep for ourselves. When we sin, we sin for the heaven in it, not the hell. Think about lust. Whether it's it's lust in our minds or lust through actions of, of looking at pictures or videos or people in certain ways. The way we would potentially deceive ourselves is, well, I'm just enjoying God's creation. That would be a way that I've maybe heard that said. Where instead we're devaluing the image of God in people. When we sin, we sin for the heaven in it, not the hell. Perhaps you can think of other examples. In this time period, I I always think about growing food and gathering food and and thinks to me about eating it. I wonder, I wonder, what gluttony looks like. This food, it, the corn tastes so good. I really don't need any more, and I am so full, but it's so good that I just need to eat another ear of corn and slather more butter and salt to clog my veins. The food is just so good to pass up that I can't put it down. We sin for the heaven in it, the good food that God has created for us to enjoy, but maybe at times we we take it too far and it affects our bodies and it affects our lifestyles. Or we feel guilty of it and we're like, well, I need to go work out an extra hour this week because I did X, Y, and Z. When we sin, we we do it for the good things that are associated with whatever it is, not the bad things. We We deceive ourselves into thinking what we do is not actually sin. But I think the thing is about sin is it goes way deeper than just the actions. If it was just our actions and things that we could see, it would be so much easier to detect in our own lives. But in reality, sin goes deeper. It's the intent. It's the will. It's the desires that are deep within our minds, and our hearts. Emily talked about the Heidelberg Catechism earlier, this teaching document, uh, to help us understand what faith means. And, and oftentimes, it'll, uh, there's one section that goes through the Ten Commandments to try to give a deeper meaning. What was the intent of the command? And this is what it says about the, the Tenth Commandment. That the Tenth Commandment forbids any desire contrary to God and that those things should never arise in our heart. Anything that is contrary to God should never arise within our hearts. I think they get that from when Jesus was talking about adultery and he said, even looking upon someone would be committing adultery in your heart. Going as far as that, the desires and the thoughts just within our heart, not even the actions associated with them, cause us to sin, cause us to miss the mark of what God had intended. And after that first sin, that's that's how it went. Sin entered the world and and all of our thoughts became something that would would potentially be something we could consider sin, twisting the intention that God had placed. And because Adam and Eve sinned, they could no longer live with God in the garden, and, and they were expelled from that place. They were evicted from the place that they were called, that they called home. And to leave, and God put a flaming sword in the way that they couldn't return. This good and beautiful, very good world in which God had created was tarnished. It was like the temple was destroyed and and he could no longer live with the people which, which was was his intent. And perhaps you think, yeah, the serpent won. He got people away from God and and he began having people question God's love. He began having people question God's intention and taking things into different ways. Perhaps you could say the serpent wins when we think about sin as our intentions and our wills. We would think, man, I am a terrible person. I'm a terrible person how could How could God ever love me? How could he ever love me when when thoughts arise in my heart so easily that are contrary to His will? Perhaps you think the crafty serpent wins. But here's the thing. Repentance is, is doing a 180. It's turning in completely the different direction. When we, when we recognize that sin, when the Holy Spirit recognizes that, brings that to attention in our life, and we do a 180, and we say that we are not gonna live that way anymore. The serpent doesn't win. Because God found a way to show us His love. God found a way to show us His grace, His mercy, and to bring into, in, us into a relationship where we experience peace. By just turning. Responding to what God arises in our life, and recognizing who made that possible. one who crushed the head of the serpent and restored God's temple, that God could once again live with His people internally through the Spirit which lives in you and in me in all of us, making His presence known in our life. And we rehearse that story every week that we come here. That's why we usually have a time of confession. But more so, we have a time of assurance. Because God does love you. He cares for you. He cared so much that while we were still sinners, He sent His Son to take our place. To begin the process of restoration in this world where one day, The way God intended things to work would be so. Creation would be renewed and restored and no longer used in evil and sinful ways. And we have an opportunity this morning to not just hear that story, but to take it in physically. We take it in through the physical eating of bread that reminds us of the body of Christ and the drinking of juice which reminds us of His shed blood which has forgiven each and every one of us for not only the actions that have happened, but also for, for those thoughts in our minds that no one else knows are there. He forgives you for even those. And it reminds us that God always finds a way. He will work tirelessly for us to know His never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Always. Jesus initiated... That way, and I invite you, uh, we handed out those small single serving communion packs. You can feel free to just have that close. Uh, there's one tab that will open up a little bit later that will open the bread wafer. Um, and these are non gluten free. So if you need gluten free, raise your hand and Shelly will help you out. Grab your elements at home as well. This is one of the ways that God put in the world, to sustain us for our journey, a physical way that we would take in something that helps us remember who Christ is us i don 't know about you if if there's something that you do that always takes you back to a certain place, it centers you at a certain area there's some as weird as it is, a Maroon 5 song from like 2007. I hear this song and I'm always reminded of playing a certain video game in college. It's a weird thing. But that's what I'm getting at. And that's what communion is supposed to be in our life. That every time that we... We eat the bread and we drink the juice that we're reminded and taken back to remember the deepness of God's love for you and for me and how He took upon Himself the cross so that we could live with Him forevermore. That He took upon the cross that He could restore all of creation and even ourselves. So before Jesus went to the cross, He wanted to institute that into His disciples' memories. And that's what's been passed down from generation to generation to generation of us. So Christ, He invites you. It's not me. It's He Himself. Jesus Himself invites you to His table Right now. Just as he invites those all over the world who believe in him and have been baptized into his name. Here at Princeton we even include baptized children. Because the Israelites invited their whole family to participate in the Passover. And since this was based on the Passover, we believe the families of those who believe and those who have been baptized should be involved as well so they can learn and understand and grow with Jesus as they grow themselves. So He's even invited small children to trust in Him at whatever they can do at their age. As Last Supper, Jesus took some bread and He broke it after He gave thanks. And He said, this, this is my body, which is given for you. And then a little bit later He took the cup. He took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And then every time that you gather together, when you eat of this bread and this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. It's from Corinthians. Every time we rehearse the story that means so much to us. Let's pray and thank God for this cup and this bread. Lord God, we thank You for what You have done in our lives and how You speak in language that is is uh, understandable to us. That You use things like bread and wine to communicate things so deep a new life with You. So we pray that You would send Your Holy Spirit on this bread and, that this, and this cup that we may be united together with all the other saints through Christ Jesus. That we would be able to remain faithful in hope and in love. And that You would continue to make known to us, our need of you each and every day as we go about them. We pray that you would bring darkness to light in our lives, that your Holy Spirit would make us aware of how much we need you by showing us our hidden desires in our heart. We pray this, that you would do this until you gather your whole church together into the glory of your kingdom. Amen. As you've gathered your elements together, I invite those here to take a moment to, to rip off that first seal and, and grab that, that wafer. To hold it and look at it. If you're at home, grab your bread or cracker or whatever you have. The body of Christ but his body, it wasn't broken. They didn't break any of his bones, but it was wounded. It was wounded so so Thomas could see and recognize that it was the Lord Jesus who had risen from the dead. It It was wounded and he kept those wounds to perhaps show us and help us remember how much He truly loves you how much He loves us so much to take on those wounds to pave a way for a new relationship. Take it. Eat it. Remember and believe that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was given for the complete forgiveness of all of our sins. Take the cup. Jesus called this His blood of the new covenant. You can rip off that seal if you haven't done so already. It's this covenant that cleanses you and me and all of us from all of our sin. It's it's one that washes over us and makes us as white as snow. It's a covenant which looks forward to a day when when Jesus' kingdom will come in its fullness and no more blood will ever be shed again. Murder will be no more. There will be no blood in the streets. There will be no blood on individuals' hands because everything will be restored to the original intent of creation. God living with His people Where bodies are restored. Where life is lived to the full. Take the cup. Drink it. All of it and remember and believe that the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ was given for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. Let's take a moment to thank God for what He has done in each of our lives. Lord, we thank You for this opportunity to remember. We thank You for this opportunity to be strengthened. We thank You for this opportunity that causes us to put the focus right where it needs to be. Your kingdom. We pray that this would strengthen us and cause us to live in the ways that You have intended in our life and gently guide those who are along with us into right living as well. We pray that You would would keep us from sinning for the heaven of it. That You would Keep us from, from looking at sin even in our own lives. Areas that we think are still good or still have good intent. We pray that you would gently correct that and then continually remind us each and every day that you died for that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray the only One who can restore us with God the Father. Amen.